So I'd uh, like to have you turn it with me where this is another part of worship. It's studying God's word. And so let's turn to John chapter 16. And as we come now to the, to the close of this particular chapter, now I, 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 I want to mention that uh, we, we began a series of studies. Of course, we've been going through the, the Gospel of John now for over two and a half years. But we began a series of studies from chapter 13 on that, deal, that have dealt with only one night, the night of Passover before the crucifixion of Jesus. One night for many, many weeks. And we're coming now to the end of, of uh, this section where Jesus has, had begun a discourse, uh, uh, a, a declaration of many things to his disciples. It, it began with an act. It, it began with a washing of, of their feet. Jesus washed their feet to show them that this was what they were going to be doing. They were not going to be ruling and reigning. They were going to be serving. And that service was going to have a, a, a tremendous number of lessons before uh, all of that would be implemented. And it had to do, first of all, with, it, with how they responded to what was going to happen in the next few hours. Because they were certainly still in confusion about all the things that had happened. When, it, when Judas Iscariot left them uh, back in chapter 13, they, they, they thought he had just gone out to do an errand. But Jesus was very clear to him, go do what you're going to do. For the Lord knew exactly what he was going to do. But then he spent that intimate time with his disciples, the 11, sharing with them about his return. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Share to them about the Father. Encourage them about the, the, the promise of the Spirit that was going to come to them when he would depart. And the very issue of him departing was another crucial aspect to their, their confusion. Because they didn't understand fully what he meant by that. Yet how many times did Jesus tell them he was going to go to the cross, he was going to die, and, and on the third day he would rise again from the dead? Yet just like any of us, we would hope for a better understanding of, of all that Jesus said. He talked to them about persecution. He talked to them about the hatred of people toward him and toward them. And so, he filled them with one very important thing. He said, love one another as I have loved you. And the Father loves you because you love me. And because you believe that I've come from him. He spoke to them about the joy of the resurrection, although still they were clouded with, 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 with the understanding of it. He says, you'll be glad when you see me again, but then I'm going to depart again and be at the right hand of my father. 
So if we can conclude this chapter with anything, we conclude it with one little statement that Jesus made at the very end in chapter 16, verse 33. Be of good cheer. But what does that mean? What does that mean for us as believers in Jesus Christ as we see the world in such chaos today? As we see the world in such confusion today, in such darkness and such wickedness? There is certainly a lot of wickedness around us, isn't there? So how will all of this fit into our lives today? We begin in verse 28, where Jesus said, I came forth from the Father and am come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said unto him, Lo, now speakest thou plainly and speakest no proverb. Now are we sure that thou knowest all things, and needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou camest forth from God. Jesus answered them, Do ye now believe? Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered every man to his own, and shall leave me alone, and yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So as we come now to the end of chapter 16, and more generally, to the end of Jesus' Passover discourse given to his 11 disciples, it is of utmost importance to note that the Lord actually sums up his whole life on earth, on this earth, in verse 28, with four grand declarations. Look at these grand declarations he makes. I came forth from the Father. What was he declaring? He was declaring his incarnation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Secondly, he makes the declaration, I am come into the world. And this is a reminder of his mission. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He came as one that was given for a very specific mission. Thirdly, he said, I leave the world. And this speaks of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, what many people call his passion, but, but this is exactly what he meant when he says, I leave the world, he has to die, he will be buried, and on the third day he will rise again. And then very simply he says, I go to the Father, which he has been telling them this for a good while, but nonetheless he says, I go to the Father, which of course speaks of his ascension. So those are the four declarations, and they're grand declarations. They're majestic declarations of Jesus. And there are two things that stand out from this complete declaration. First, it follows a pattern for us. It it follows a pattern set for us, I should say, in the book of Isaiah, concerning the word of God being sent out by the Lord God 
to accomplish his purposes. Well, that goes very well with our understanding of who Jesus is because back in John chapter 1, we're told in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, face to face with God, and the Word was God. And then, of course, it says the Word became flesh. So we know that the Word of God, the Logos of God, is Jesus. So when we consider the, the pattern set in the book of Isaiah concerning the word of God being sent out by the Lord God to accomplish his purposes and to return to the one who sent it forth, we go to Isaiah 55. And we read there in verse 6, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. By the, by the way, I'm starting a little early because I want to kind of set the context for what, for what uh, is said here. Uh, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts neither are your ways my ways saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain cometh down and here's where you want to begin to listen. For as for as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven and returneth not thither but watereth the earth and maketh it bring forth in bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth it shall not return unto me void of course that implies that it is going to return to him but it won't return to him empty so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth it shall not return unto me void but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing uh, whereto I sent it. So we see then that pattern. God has sent forth his only begotten son. He has sent forth to do a work. The work was to come, to be the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. And how would he be taking away the sin of the world? He would die as the, as, as the Lamb sacrificed, the pure Lamb of God sacrificed. For us. And then after rising from the dead, he would return unto the Father. But there's a second thing that uh, this declaration or these four declarations should remind us about. And the second thing is that it is a reminder of God's love. It is a reminder of God's love being the beginning, the middle, and the end of his complete plan of redemption. It was his love that conceive the plan for our deliverance, for our rescue, for our salvation. It was God's love that set his plan in motion and will carry it through to its ultimate completion. It is God's love that eternally flows between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and that same love also embraces us, and it saves us, and it changes us, and it fills us, and it flows back from us in Christ through the Spirit and once again to the Father. This is why we sing a lot of times songs about us loving the Lord, because he first loved us. What can we do but, but express ourselves in, in thanksgiving and in gratitude and in praise and in worship to the God who saved us from sin and from death? And by the way, it has been said, love is the stuff of which eternity is made. Love is the stuff of which eternity is made. Consider that from what the Lord said to the serpent in the garden at the fall of mankind when God speaks directly to that serpent and, and, and to Satan really in, in effect. 
And he says in Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity, I will put hostility between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. The promise of Messiah, the promise of the anointed one, the promise of the one to be sent to save. From that to John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It would be difficult to miss the extent of God's love for the pinnacle of his creation, which is man, man created in his image, and the extent to which he would go to save us to the uttermost. I want us to know as believers in Jesus Christ that when God saved us through his son, Jesus Christ, that when he saved us, he saved us to the uttermost. And, and, I, and I don't think we, you know, we, we can actually fully understand that. But that is a, that is a, a, a word that is used in the, Hebrew, in, in the book of Hebrews. And in that text in chapter 7, verses 22 through 27, it's actually in verse 25. But once again, for context sake, context sake, Consider that it says, by so much was Jesus made a surety or a guarantee of a better testament. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered or, or permitted to continue by reason of death. But this man, speaking of Jesus, but this man, because he continueth ever, in other words, he, he is forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Where, wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost. This is what the Lord does. He saves us to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such a high priest became us. And that's the the key here that we don't want to miss. Such a high priest became us. Don't forget that the high priest out of the the, the Levitical line, these priests, they all had to offer sacrifices for themselves first. Because they were human. And they could not go in and enter into the holy place or into the most holy place without having first sacrifice for themselves. Jesus didn't have to do that because he was already sinless. And he was most holy. And is still most holy. So Paul is saying, who needeth not daily, he goes on to say. Well, he says, for such a high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. Did it only once and not for himself, but for us. He saved us to the uttermost. Didn't just save us a little bit. Then just save us 50% wise. He saved us completely and totally from sin and death, from Hades, from eternal separation from him. This is how he saved us. This is to what extent he saved us. For this, we should be eternally grateful. For this, we should always praise God. For this, we should always thank him every day of our lives. Every day of our lives. But with the Lord, expressions of love also come with loving words of warning as well. Because the Lord would have us stay in his love. In this case, he gave his disciples warning. 
based upon an overconfidence expressed by the disciples along with a weak faith. Now, this may sound a bit contradictory, but, but the fact is overconfidence many times masks feelings of weakness and inadequacy. Let's consider what the text is so you'll understand what I'm saying. John 16, verses 29 and 30. After Jesus has told him, I've came forth from the Father and have come into the world, and again I leave the world and go to the Father, his disciples said unto him, Lo, now speakest thou plainly and speakest no proverb. Now are we sure that thou knowest all things, and needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou camest forth from God. Now, you have to understand, I, I truly, uh, I want you to take note, first of all, that the disciples are being sincere in their response. I, I truly believe that. With all my heart, they were sincere in their response to Jesus' majestic summary statement. What he said in verse 28. But there is some tone of overconfidence in the reaction that reveals they actually misunderstood Jesus' intent and what he was saying. In other words, Jesus' words stung them to the core as they heard about the master's mission, about the marvel of his passion, about the mystery of his departure. And so they burst out with his great enthusiasm. Lo, now speakest thou plainly and speakest no proverb. And that, of course, based on something that Jesus said back in verse 25. He said, these things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs, but... The time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. So they're saying, oh, no, you now speak plainly and, and you speak no proverb. That's kind of like saying amen, brother, to Jesus. And then you couple that with what they said about his person. Because in the next verse, they say, now are we sure that thou knowest all things? Folks, I don't know if you remember, but if, and I'm not going to take you all the way back to the beginning of the Gospel of John, but there were times when Jesus said things and did things, knowing things that were happening, and they observed it, they witnessed it, and they were like amazed that Jesus knew these things. So he's always known all things, right? He always has known it. He's never shown them that he didn't know it. But now they're saying, three and a half years later, oh, thou knowest all things. Now we're sure. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou camest from God. So they're saying to Jesus, now we believe. I have no doubt that they were sincere. Jesus had, in effect, answered their unspoken questions. And by the way, many times. So was there any more proof that they needed of Christ's omniscience? Omniscience being, of course, his being able to know all things. But this is where they misinterpreted the Lord's words. And not only that, but, but think that they had no real clue about the means of Jesus' departure from this earth. They had no clue about what was going to take place, the horror that was going to take place within the next 24 to 48 hours. It had not even begun to penetrate their minds, even though Jesus had time and time again, toward the end, told them of what would take place. 
And let's not forget that Jesus set all of this up with his statement about the spirit of truth back in verses 12 through 15. When he said, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. What does he hear from? The Father. But whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine and, show, and shall show it unto you. But of course, as we said previously, Jesus was speaking primarily of Pentecost and the day of receiving the promise of the Father. That the Spirit would come upon them and they would begin to know all things because the Spirit would be their teacher. Even in the Word of God. And so when Jesus said in verse 23, in that day he shall, you shall ask me nothing. And because he answered their questions, they then interpreted his words at face value. These words here in this text. And in effect that they, they were hearing from Jesus, you won't need to ask me because in my omniscience I will know and anticipate everything you want. But that's quite different from what he said. Because what Jesus said was, you will ask me nothing because you will have the Spirit to light the way for you and will also lead you. Which he said earlier. And we confirmed that by the text. And those are different things altogether. But then the disciples added something else. They said, we believe that thou camest forth from God. Now consider, if you will, that as a group, <laughs> in that statement that they made as a group, they barely surpassed the Pharisee Nicodemus. Barely. Who had said to Jesus in John 3, verse 2, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. <laughs> and he was a guy searching for truth. And the disciples as a group had been with Jesus for three and a half years. And they said, by this we believe that thou comest forth from God. If you're just believing that now, then you barely surpass the one seeking Jesus. Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. And not only that, but they had been surpassed already by John the Baptist. When John in, one, in chapter 1 of John verse 29 said, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. Knew him exactly. And most of those disciples heard John say that. Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. So when you think of the disciples' confession here in verses 29 and 30, it was a mixture of dullness and discernment. Yeah, there was some discernment, but there was also this, this dullness of expression. What is most interesting is that the Lord didn't reject their faulty confession outright, but, but he certainly recognized its inadequacy and their weak faith in expressing it. Now they, they were in for a rude awakening. Jesus is going to respond to them. 
And what does he do but rebuke their overconfidence and their weak faith? Listen to what he said to them. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Now we're going to know that he was answering them this way because of two words. Exactly the same word in English, two words in Greek. I think we did this exercise last week with another word, didn't we? Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come. That you shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone, because the Father is with me. What did the disciples say? They said, now we're sure. Now we're sure. What did Jesus say? He asked them a question. Do you now believe? Do you now believe? And once again, we need to look at the Greek language to note that the Lord's now is not the same as the disciples now. And this is key. The disciples now, there in, uh, in verse 30, is the Greek word nun, N-U-N, nun which simply means the present and immediate time. Now. You could just see the light bulb. Or maybe it's the little uh, lamp. Now we believe. Now we're sure. The present immediate time. The word Jesus used for now is the Greek word RT. A-R-T-I, R-T, which suggests the present time in suspension as it pertains to a similar word, suspense. Which is interesting, you know, I was, I was really checking the etymology of, this, of, of these two words because I wanted to make sure that there was some connection to them. As I was looking at the, the way that it was, the, the word R-T is described uh, in its... Uh, uh, translation but interestingly the word suspension can be defined as the act of suspending or the state of being suspended while suspense can be translated as the condition of being suspended a cessation of uh, for a time a cessation for a time a ceasing of time a suspension of time that's the word that Jesus uses here, interestingly. Because with those definitions in mind, the word now that Jesus used, the word arti, expresses the unpleasant emotion of anxiety or apprehension in, a, in an uncertain situation. Which is why Jesus used the term. Do you now believe? You better suspend that now of, of yours. <laughs> To understand that something else is going to happen. Do you now believe? What, what Jesus, why Jesus used that word is that it was a word that suggested a crisis that he alone knew very well. Jesus knew that very shortly they would be hearing the marching of feet coming toward them. Very shortly they, he knew that 
the disciples would be hearing the collective voices of, of the mob that would be surrounding and sounding in the streets and the temple courts later on in the, the early morning of the next day. And the disciples couldn't hear those ominous sounds just yet, but they were nearing each and every minute. And Jesus alone knew the storm would break within the hour, or within the hour or the next hour. So understand why Jesus uses the word. He says, so you now believe? Well, in effect, he's saying your, your belief is going to be tested. Your faith in me is going to be tested. Greatly. What does he say to them? Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come. That you shall be scattered. Every man to his own. And you shall leave me alone, and yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. That next phrase, you shall be scattered, every man to his own, suggests greatly that the bond that they had together as disciples of Jesus Christ would be severed. The bond that they had together would be severed. Literally, what Jesus said to them was, you shall be scattered every man to his own home. That phrase is the, the phrase in the Greek, ta-idia, which is dealing with, with actually going to your own home. It, it is a, it's, one, it's used only one at a time in, in, in the Greek, and it's, it's that suggestion that of going to a, a one person's own home. So he's saying you're going to be scattered, and you're going to, every man to his own place. Just, you're, you're all just going to scatter. You're not going to go in twos like I sent you out to minister the, you know, the gospel. I, I, you're, not, you're, you're going to go each and every one to his own place. Each one would shortly be thinking of his own personal safety. Each, of, each, each of, on their own would run off into the night trying to get to their own homes as fast as they could. Jesus was wanting them to beware of that fleeting emotion of the moment. Oh, now we believe. Now we're sure. Are you sure? Do you now believe? Examine what you just said. This was the acid test, so to speak. Testing the professed gold of their own profession of faith to make sure that it is indeed real. How real is your faith in me today? Because this is what's going to happen to you in the next few hours. How real is your faith then? Why are you being overconfident? As if you finally got it. This is what's going to happen. And one of the disciples would say it best later. He would get it through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that was Peter. Because Peter writes in his first letter to the church. And I have to say, he writes unashamedly as one who has, had experienced the failures of these things. But Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 through 9, he says, Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season. And guess which word he uses? Arti. Time and suspension. 
wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Your faith is going to be tested. I know that because mine was, Paul, uh, Peter is saying. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, in whom, though now you see him not, yet believing you rejoice with joy, unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. If you are going to be a believer in Jesus Christ, you are going to need to understand that you are going to be tested by fire. Your faith will be tested. In fact, each and every day we are tested. Our faith is tested in Jesus. From the moment that our eyes open and we take our first breath in the morning. Oh, by the way, I know that you're breathing at night too, I think, and I hope. But the first conscious breath you take in the morning, you will be tested. And Peter was one whom we know, when he scattered, decided to stay in the shadows for a time, to follow, to see what was going to happen to Jesus. Let's test what Peter said that he was going to do for Jesus. First of all, at one time he said he was going to protect Jesus, and Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. Then he says, wherever you're going, I'm going. And Jesus says, no. You're going to deny me three times. So can you then imagine, if you will, which none of us really can, by the way, the sense of the guilt that he had by the shore of the Galilee when Jesus was there after the resurrection. And he said to Peter, Peter, do you love me? This is the reason why Peter mentions love in verse 8 when he says, whom having not seen, you love. It's as if he's saying, I've seen him and I experienced his love and I betrayed that love and I carried the guilt for so many days until Jesus in his love confronted me about my love for him. Do you love me, Peter? Oh, Jesus, you know I like you a lot. Then feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Oh, Lord, you know I, 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 I like you a whole bunch. Well, tend to my lambs. So, Peter, do you, do you like me? Oh, Lord, <laughs> you know I love you. Then feed my sheep. The guilt would leave him. This was a way of Jesus expressing his forgiveness to Peter. You love me? And serve me. 
So he knew about this trial by fire. Getting back to the disciples, something else that was quite interesting to me is the reference that Jesus makes to a prophecy in Zechariah in the simple words that he says, you shall be scattered. Because in Zechariah 13, verse 7, it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. <clears throat> and I will turn my hand upon the little ones. What I find interesting is that while the disciples mentioned earlier that Jesus no longer spoke to them in, Par- in Proverbs, the Lord made this statement proverbially. <laughs> Not as a complete fulfillment of the prophecy, you see but certainly as an illustration of what was to be for the nation of Israel. So he uses it proverbially. He says, you shall be scattered. And so he did continue to speak to them in Proverbs, at least in that moment. And then Jesus said, and you shall leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. He would be, for the time being, abandoned. Although John would be near at the cross, and and as we said, Peter would follow from afar until his denials of his Lord would drive him to his own garden of guilt. The good thing was that Jesus was not counting on the disciples' support in the terrible hours ahead. And I say it is a good thing for us Because one thing is for sure, we are just like the disciples many times. Not that we don't love the Lord and not that we're not faithful to the Lord. But there are times when the enemy does so much to confound us and confuse us, especially in the area of guilt, when we've sinned and, 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 and feel so far from the Lord that, that the enemy first and foremost wants us to be away from God by, by just telling us, you know, by what you did, God just can't love you anymore. And he's not going to forgive you anymore for you know, the hundreds of times that you've asked him to forgive you over the same thing. You're just useless. You might as well not go to church anymore. Isn't it interesting that sometimes we carry this guilt so much that we think that everybody's talking about us when nobody knows anything about us? You understand that problem? It, sh- it shows that we don't have a victory in the, in the life of Jesus. Or that we're not standing upon the victory that he's already won for us on the cross. Understand that the loneliness that Jesus would would experience would become a part of his anguish. It was an expected part of his anguish. Because Jesus could only go to the cross alone. And yet by his own words he said that he was not alone for the Father was with him. Which tells us something about us who say that we are believers in Jesus Christ who are filled not only with the presence of Christ but with the presence of the Holy Spirit. If that is the case, then we're not alone. And then always remember this. 
that Jesus did know everything. Jesus knew all. And even when he chose these men, he knew that they would fail him and they would desert him. And yet he went ahead and chose them. Think about that and think about you. When you're ready to throw in the, in the towel, you don't make that decision. You take it to him. And if he's not going to throw in the towel, then why should you? You understand? Okay. I'm mad at you. <laughs> I might be mad at myself, but I'm not mad at you. He went ahead and chose them. He knew they would eventually prove faithful. That should be a great comfort for us. The enemy beats us down with guilt practically every day. We question our faithfulness. We question our trustworthiness so often that discouragement sets in to the point of our withdrawal. But we need to keep at the forefront of our understanding that Jesus is forgiving. We could talk about the, you know, the 70 times 7 thing, you know, with Peter. You, know. you forgive us three times, seven times? 70 times 7. Wow, let me get my calculator. Four, only 490 times? The idea is it's countless. Countless. He forgave every one of his disciples, even for deserting him. He did not hold their sin and failure against them. So may I say to you today that his arms reach out for every deserter just to forgive them and to receive them back. Some of us can testify of that. Paul said in Romans 4 verses 23 through 25, he said, now... It was not written for his sake alone, speaking of Abraham, by the way, because he's been speaking of Abraham here in chapter 4. He says, now it was not uh, written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, <clears throat> but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. I'm getting, I'm getting to the what's imputed, which is um, uh, righteous and justification who was delivered for our offenses, speaking of Jesus, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Raised for our justification. Which, by the way, and I've inserted here just the understanding of what justification is, so you'll know. It's forgiveness and acceptance. Being forgiven and accepted by God. Not by any righteousness of our own. Not by works of righteousness, that Paul tells uh, Titus, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he has saved us. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. I want you to hear Paul's testimony. Paul said, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Now, Listen, we could stop there and not look on to what's next. And we could say, oh my, you know, he's, he's, is he being proud? I mean, that, that he's kind of faithful. Really? Okay, let's, let's go on. Paul speaks of himself. He says, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious 
But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. And this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. So what is he boasting in? Not himself. Because <laughs> he said, I'm the chief of sinners. And I know most of you want to argue with him. I do all the time. No, Paul, you're not the chief I am. So who's the chief of sinners in this room today? <laughs> We're all sinners, aren't we? Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Yes, their faith would be tested. And yes, they would fail. But that would not be the end of it. Because eventually, their faith would be triumphant. What a way to end his discourse to his disciples. He said in verse 33, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have Irene, the Greek for peace. What he meant in Hebrew would be shalom. In me you might have shalom, peace. In the world you shall have tribulation. Please note that he doesn't say you might have. You could possibly have. He says, you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Please don't look at cheer here as, you know, having that big emoji with a big smile. Cheerful type of cheer. It's not far from that. In fact, uh, cheer of that sort or joy, if you will, is, is something that uh, is, 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 a, is a byproduct of this word in the Greek for cheer. But it's, it's not as if, oh boy, we could be cheerful. Hey, listen, he's, he, he's saying this before he goes to the cross. So when you consider what he's saying, he says, I've spoken these things so that you might have shalom in spite of all that you're going to see, all that you're going to experience, all that you're going to know. I've overcome the world. He says it in future tense, yet he hasn't gone to the cross yet, but he knows what the outcome is. Death can't hold him. And so he is victorious over sin and death. So they would eventually have peace, which again, shalom or irene is prosperous, prosperous peace. It is a piece of wholeness and completeness. It is the understanding that shalom is not just hello and goodbye. Which is okay to use when you're in Israel, you know. Shalom, everybody knows what that means, hello. And when you leave, shalom, goodbye, you know. But it's more than that. And, and, and the Israelis know that, and, and those who study the word in, in Hebrew know that shalom means much more than that. They are wishing you God's blessings of prosperity, God's blessings of completeness in your life. Words mean things, folks, especially the words that Jesus uses. 
So he says that they would eventually have peace through his word. And by the way, who is the word? Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among them. Remember what he said. These things I have spoken unto you that you, that in me, in me you might have peace. That in me you might have peace. Every believer in Christ is to truly abide and to dwell in Christ. That's John 15. Studied that not long ago. The importance of dwelling in Christ, the importance of abiding in Christ, the importance of living in Christ, the importance of walking in Christ. What it meant for Noah, let let, let me put it this way, what it meant for Noah to be in the ark is what it should mean for every believer to be in Christ. Think about that for just a moment. What it meant for Noah to be in the ark is what it should mean for every believer to be in Christ. Because in the ark, Noah, in spite of all that was going on outside, Noah could rest in peace. In Christ, no matter what happens, no matter what is yet to come, the believer has peace. That is Christ's promise to us. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. That's his promise. Faith, and folks, if you write anything down, write this down. Faith will always triumph over tribulation. Our faith in Christ will always triumph over tribulation. And by the way, the word tribulation, I believe it's Thalipsis is, is the word that expresses the anguish of that woman in labor that Jesus described earlier. Anguish. Uh, the, the, the trials, the, the, the uh, afflictions, the tribulations, even the temptations of life. Faith will always triumph over these things. Now the world itself can only give trials and tribulation. (laughs) The world itself can only give trials. The world itself can only give tribulation. And no matter who the person is, the trials and tribulations will come and no one can avoid them. Now whatever peace may come to this world, it is only temporary. It is only transient. Passing ever so quickly. Think about his, historically. There's a, there's a period of time that most people say is, is, is the time of the greatest amount of peace on the, on the earth, which was what they call the Pax Romana, of uh, 200 years of peace during the time of the Roman, uh, Roman Empire. Pax Romana. But uh, people forget that there were other nations outside of the Roman Empire going on where everybody was killing each other all the time. You know, there, there was no peace. That was man's attempt. That's as as good as they could get. 200 years out of 6,000, that's not very much. But the peace of Jesus Christ, the peace that is in him, is lasting and it is everlasting. It is an overcoming peace, one that overcomes the trials and the tribulations of this world, no matter what kind they are, no matter to what degree they fall. 
When it comes right down to it, it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that makes this true. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that makes this triumphant peace available. It is a true peace and it is a triumphant peace. Only by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now that's keeping everything in context with what we talked about with Jesus speaking of the joy of the resurrection. So he says, be of good cheer. The word for cheer in the Greek, tharseo, tharseo, T-H-A-R-S-E-O, comes from the root word tharsos, that means to have boldness. So it isn't about just having a smiley face. It's about having boldness. And therefore, to be of good cheer means to have courage, and in that courage and in boldness, you have comfort. There is comfort in being bold and courageous before God. And through the power of the Holy Spirit. And why? Because Christ has overcome. And he has overcome, which by the way is the word nikao. N-I-K-A-O. And it comes from the word nike, which some of you are wearing on your feet today. Nike we call it. The word nike literally means to conquer. And Jesus conquered the cosmos. I have overcome the world. It's been done. I think I said, I think I said earlier, it was a, he's the future. It's, it's, he uses the past tense as if it's already done because he already knew that he would rise from the dead. So I'll make that quick correction. But Christ has overcome and conquered the cosmos. Jesus Christ is our means of conquest. We don't conquer without Christ. Jesus Christ is the means of our victory. We can't have victory without Jesus. Why? Because he's our victory. And we can't have triumph without Christ because he is our triumph. I'm, I'm going to close with Ephesians chapter 1. You can turn there. But, but, but it brought to mind a, a, another a, a verse of scripture. And I'm going to turn there and, and maybe write it into my notes here. Because it just, it, it, it really kind of really ah, moved on my heart to, to share this with you. And it's, uh, I'll just read it to you. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 57. It says, but thanks be to God which, gave, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's pretty clear and plain. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57. Right before that, it says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Okay. So I want to close with Ephesians chapter 1, because this, this kind of ties together everything that we've, that we've we studied from the beginning of this passage in, uh, in, in John 16. But Paul said this, he said, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ, which means he worked it in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And he has put all things under his feet, Paul is expressing this very thing that we need to understand at all times, and that is that Jesus is our victory. 
over the principalities and powers that Paul even himself mentions in chapter 6 of Ephesians. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers. Jesus is the conqueror over those. We have to trust in that. We have to believe in that. We need to stand in that because that's what he says time and time again in the Ephesians 6 passage. Stand. Stand fast. Withstand. And in all that you do, stand. Stand on these things. Why? Because we have principalities and powers attacking us each and every day. Mines and dominions. And every name that is named not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And then he says in verse 22, And has put all things under his feet and, give, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Which means that we are now to be subject to, subject to Christ. Which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. We cannot be separated from Christ. We are in Christ. Let's stay in Christ. Let's abide in Christ. Let's dwell in him. Because he is the victor. He is the conqueror. He is our triumph. He has triumphed for us. Praise the Lord.